mind, and then you've got actually several uh, different issues plugged together as the kind of one thing. Yeah. Wait, wait, I couldn't. Yeah. Uh, I can't see you. Let me. There we go. Perfect. Now it's perfect. Okay. Yeah. All right. Um, like I was about to say, there are several things that uh, need to be discussed, but the way that we're going to discuss it kind of put it into one thing. Yeah. All right. And that it kind of hinges on a concept uh, that is difficult for many people to understand. And this is the concept of action that leads to non-action. Yeah. Non-action does not lead to non-action. Uh-huh. But there are, and most actions don't lead to non-action. But there are certain kinds of actions we can take that will take us to non-action. That in fact in the suttas is called not just action but comma the comma that leads to the end of comma. And that what we mean by comma or the actions are the normal actions of the mind. The normal running around of the mind are the actions that we're going to put um, an end to by actions. An example of that is, is that if the police Hang on a sec. No problem. Huh? I know. Yes. Okay. Okay. So, um, the kind of action that leads to non-action would then be to, it's like the thought that I had, it's like um, a police roadblock. The police cannot stop the driver of that car by not doing anything. So non-action of the police is going to allow or continue the action of the driving criminal. But if the cops go out there and take the action to put up a roadblock, yeah. then they can stop the criminal. Okay. So this is the kind of action that puts an end to action. Okay. That's one thread. The next thread is um, the issue of Western mentality about clinging or attachments. To where in uh, the suttas themselves, the Buddha only talks about four modes of clinging. There are literally only four modes of clinging, which means that we only need to work with four modes. Okay. What are those four modes? The uh, one of the four modes is uh, uh, clinging to identities and to a thicket of views, of views about the world, of views about how things ought to run, um, and um, uh, joining political parties and uh, defining uh, who I am and who we are as opposed to other people. So basically. This whole thicket of views is the source of things like racism, bigotry, um, uh, hatred of things that we don't know. And that hatred of things that we don't know is really just fear of the unknown. 
Yeah. But those kind of fears can be politically manipulated nowadays. Yeah. Uh, but the, the point here is that uh, this mode of clinging uh, is normally referred to in scientific parlance as the territorial instinct. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Things that we cling to that define our territory, like I'm an American, or I am British, or I am um, uh, our job defines us as opposed to other jobs. So our job is our territory, our um, location is our territory, but humans not like dogs, you see. The dogs didn't evolve, so their territorial instinct is still all about territory. Yeah. And so they bark when something comes into their territory. Another dog comes in the yard and they start barking, right? Yeah. Well, we do exactly the same thing as the dogs do, only our territory is now intellectual territory. Yeah. And when somebody comes into our territory, we start barking. Just like the, uh, the Christian and the atheist comes into the Christian territory, the Christians start barking. <laughs> yes. Yes. This is one of the modes of clinging. We need to see that. We need to see what we cling to so that we stop clinging to things that identify us by that territory. It's almost okay. like being around an ID card, a whole big bucket of ID cards. I am a this, I am a that, I'm a computer man, I'm a, uh, a voter, I'm a... Uh, uh, a politician, whatever, this I am stuff that yeah. has to do with the outside world or the territories that define it. That's one mode of clinging. And you can see how that kind of clinging is politics itself. Mm -hmm. Okay. The next mode of clinging is clinging to, uh, and these are related, ones like the outside, the territory, outside versus inside. But on the inside, that's the nest or the herd. Inside the herd, and we have a herding mentality. This is also quite abused by our society because we're herded into jobs, we're herded into the schools, we're herded into behaving in certain ways. Yeah. So this herding instinct that we have, or we can also call it nesting instinct, and it has the quality that if you don't go along with the herd or if you don't operate according to the nest rules, then the danger is you don't get thrown out of the herd. Mm -hmm. Like uh, uh, a baby monkey that will cry and cry and cry up in the nest where the monkeys are. The, the, the lead monkey, the head old dude, may throw that baby out. He may snatch it from the arms of his mother and throw it out of the nest onto the ground to let the predators find it screaming down there rather than having it found in the nest above. Okay, so this is a very, very hardcore example of nesting instinct. The guy who runs the nest makes the rules. If you don't abide by the rules, he's going to kick you out. This happens in our houses all the time. The teenager says, I want to go out tonight, and daddy says no. And the girl says, well, I want to go out anyway, and I'm going to go out. And the daddy says, this is my house. You abide by my rules or get out. Yeah. How many times has that phrase been said? Many times. 
that's the nesting instinct, and this is a mode of clinging. This is really deep stuff. This is instinctual. This is way down there in there, okay? The next mode of instinct is our instinct of clinging to material goods, material objects. I think the first thing that humans did that made them humans was they picked up a burning stick and carried it around. They learned to control fire. And that was revolutionary. It indicates that about 600,000 B.C. is when man discovered fire. And once man learned to control fire in one place, all men worldwide was able to pick up control and use of the fire within a very short period of time. <clears throat> it was revolutionary, literally. And in fact, humanity has had revolutions like that from time to time that normally have to do with revelations of information. Okay. Um, let us say around 2000 to 2500 years ago, the revolution was in military skills, military knowledge, so that the Roman legions were able to conquer the world because of their military. Okay, that was, and Alexander the Great, etc., like that. So, military knowledge revolutionized the world, it created our society. Then the Gutenberg Press made a new revolution and revolution society through knowledge now the internet is here and it's really going to revolutionize humanity and knowledge and this this knowledge this new knowledge of the internet and and, and uh, computers and uh, artificial intelligence and robots is going to really change society because it's going to put humanity out of work and the very reason for civilization was to make people work to make the slaves produce so that the masters could have something. Get them out there and, and uh, move those rocks so we can have a pyramid. Yeah. <clears throat> okay. That's all falling apart right now. Yeah, yeah. Like it, like it always does. <laughs> we don't need pyramids, and if we do, we'll build a robot, <laughs> and we don't yeah. need you to put it in place. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, so human labor first was replaced by... Uh, animals, but not completely. Then it was replaced by machines that assisted men in thinking. Now we've got machines that can do the thinking for us. But this is one mode of clinging is materialism. And so along the spiritual path, this is one of the things that we loosen our control over by recognizing we don't need so many material objects. <clears throat> Just adequate housing. Just adequate food, just adequate clothing, just yeah. adequate physical attention, just getting it adequate. The psychologists have found that there's a baseline. Okay. Below the baseline is real poverty, and real poverty has real problems. But once we come up to a baseline to where we have just adequate food and adequate clothing and adequate shelter and adequate medical attention, we don't need a big house or fancy clothes, or fancy food, or a big hospital. Normally a salve will do. <laughs> yeah. Don't stitches in that little uh, four-inch cut. We can bind that up ourselves and take care of it. In fact, in the time of the Buddha, 
one of the most commonly used medicines was cow's urine. <laughs> cow's urine really? All kinds of stuff. It's been really excellent uh, antiseptic once it's gotten fermented. Yeah. It stinks to all high heaven, but uh, it gives us little, uh, little critters. <laughs> uh, and so nowadays we would not consider cow's urine um, uh, an adequate medicine, and mostly that's because cows are not easy to locate in Los Angeles. Uh, but we do have adequate medicine, and that's the whole quality that most people, uh, when, they ha when they have a problem with the body, instead of handling it themselves, they want a doctor because they, uh, uh, they feel like a victim's position. Oh, I need help. Yeah. No, we don't. The body can heal itself, and it'll die all by itself. <laughs> yes. It doesn't need yep. much medicine to do that. It's um, it's okay by by itself. So these four requisites then help us with this one instinct of materialism, and this is actually the one that frees us so that we can go off and pursue a um, a sedentary uh, spiritual life as opposed to having to work all day. I do not know why people think that they have to work all day, but that's our society. But really, yeah. it does come from the fact that somebody else is getting the benefit of your labor. If you got all the benefit of your labor, there'd be no reason for you to have to work eight hours a day. Mm -hmm. Really, back in the old, old days of hunter and gathering, it looks like the humans didn't do a lot of work. They sat around and enjoyed themselves. And that uh, the gathering, it took only an hour or two a day. And the hunting, we only did about uh, once or twice a week. That sounds nice. <laughs> well, our very regular yeah. is in the, in the main, uh, in the business of greed. Our society runs on greed. Mm -hmm. And that, that greed is for more territory. The greed is for more material goods. The greed is for a bigger house. But in fact, they even have a funny word for it. Uh, you possibly has heard of the Oedipus complex. Which I think the Oedipus so. complex is the relationship that many people don't get over, but it's a relationship between a boy and his dad in relationship to his mother. Hmm. Boy competes with uh, his dad for the affections of his mother. That's the Oedipus complex. Mm -hmm. It came from Greek ethnology for Oedipus that killed his father and married his mother. Do you know that Greek uh, myth? Uh-uh, no. Okay. And it's weird, though, because nowadays it's like you're usually raised by single parents. Like like I was like my mom but just that's my mother falling apart of the of the Western family. Mm. But in fact, the mm. of the nest itself is rotting in the West. Yeah, and there's mm. a lot of reasons for that. I'll give you a few of them. That it and actually this is the the fall apart of the family is is um, not the result of, but it got kicked off by uh, the Gutenberg press and and printing. 
because when the Bible got into the regular hands and, and many people, especially in Northeast Europe, uh, Northwestern Europe, could tell the Roman Catholic Church had been lying to them for centuries. They got really pissed off and had a war that lasted 130 years. The 100 years war followed by the 30 years war. And in this uh, conflict, it started to separate and break up families. Mm. So, uh, yeah, one, that makes sense. Yeah. One family against another. Then the next thing that happened was, and and this is happening just almost uh, lickety split within a hundred years of that time. Uh, the West was um, uh, discovered. Columbus had come, and now you have a huge influx of uh, first Spanish and also uh, English coming to the New World, but in fact uh, shipping. And the knowledge about shipping, along with the knowledge of uh, books, happened at about the same time. Interesting like that. And so the Dutch went east, in, uh, England went east, they went to the west, and then all of this colonialization meant the breakup of the families of the people who were out colonizing. And America was colonized. Mm. So many people who came to the West came as just men and didn't have any women with them. Or if they did, they brought one woman, but he didn't bring his whole extended family. That the Mayflower broke up families a lot. The next thing you have, uh, fast forward to uh, doing that for a couple of hundred years, and now you have the American Revolution that tore families apart over are you loyal to England or are you a rebel? Fast forward a little bit later, you have the Civil War. That tore families apart. Then you had another expansion with Western Hole, and that tore up families again. And so now that we've gotten into the mood of having our families torn up, the 1930s did it again. The two world wars tore up families again. Now we have a situation that the mentality of the West is the job is more important than the family, and that really destroys the family. And when I say family, I'm talking about a family size that goes from 100 down to 50, down to 25, down to 10, down to 7. Those families of size of 7 were common. Now, no. Uh, now we're down yeah, to no. one or two kids or three kids and one mom. and Or you know, none. Or none <laughs> of them. Exactly. Yeah. That's the destruction of the family. And that has not happened in Thailand. It's amazing mm-hmm. to live in a culture that is really that's just family-oriented. I'm just blown away by it. So yeah. the destructions of the family has come through this revolution, and now the new revolution of AI is going to further destroy the ancient society. Who knows what's going to happen in the future, but we do know that it's going to be done with a whole lot of people out of work. Yeah, and that's where it gets interesting. (laughs) No to go to. Yeah. The reason that we work is because of this materialism. That in fact our house winds up being more materialistic than it is a nest. All we really need for a nest is a safe place to sleep. And see, that's where I think that the the pleasure 
or the comfort, I would say. The, like, overabundance of just, like, it makes you dull. You have too much. Like, so much that that it overwhelms you. Like, too many bills and too many things and, you know, so many activities and, you know. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, And not enough satisfaction. So our society is completely dissatisfied. Now, the fourth mode of clinging is the actual clinging that comes about from the instinct of self-preservation. This is the source of our fear, and this is the primary instinct that these other three instincts live off of, okay, which means attachment to myself or attachment to me in the sense that there is the me there that wants these material objects. It's the me there that wants to have uh, all of the structure of, of the herd to keep me safe. And it's the me there that wants to have the territory. So it's the self-preservation instinct or the attachment to the self is the fourth mode of clinging, and that's the big heavy one. But yeah. now... Western Buddhism, we hear the point about um, you shouldn't attach to anything. Well, that's not mm-hmm. true. There's many things that are really worthy of attachment to. Going back to that question of action that leads to the end of action, then doing those actions that lead to the end of action, if we attach to those things, then that would be wholesome. So okay. some attachments uh. are wholesome. Yes, okay. Yeah. What is wholesome? Attaching to this present moment. That's wholesome. Mm -hmm. Attaching ourselves to friendship as opposed to the territorial instinct. Because, in fact, friendship just cuts through all of those things. So if we attach to our friendships and think that making friends is much more important than being right... Yeah. I would rather be a friend with someone than win an argument over him because guess what? No argument is ever won. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, Nobody yeah. ever changes their opinion in an argument. But you can sit down in friendship and go over a few things, and if the guy is open and listening, then he'll hear it. But if you're arguing with him, that's a clear-cut case that he's not open to listening, and neither am I. Yeah. I only and listen like, to what he has to say so that I can turn it what he says around against him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's like a very Western thing. Of, like, we should be accepted, like, even in religion. Like, you should accept my religion. and Like, you can't just talk. It always has to be about your something that you belong to. Mm-hmm. You know, like something in that regard. That, but you yeah. think, if, if you think about it like that, but that's our identity. And so we talk about the things that identify ourselves, like being Christian. That's an identity. Mm. And it's our territory. But there yeah. are things that are worth yeah. clinging to. And those are the things that, uh, the actions that lead to the end of action. So another one would be to cling to the Dhamma. And whatever the Dhamma is, this is worth clinging to. Now, what I mean by that is we have the instance of the Buddha Dhamma, but we also have the bigger Dhamma, which would be the all, 
we could call it the world, but even the word world doesn't work so much. And then universe or multiverse, but that's way too far out there. But the whole thing yeah. can be referred to as Dhammakai, or the body of the Dhamma, that which is, that which exists. And so basically what we're talking about here is by clinging to the Dhamma, we're clinging to the truth, as opposed to clinging to something that's not true. So, yeah. um, in, in the fact, the word clinging really has a particular use for it to where attachment uh, is not. Here's an example. This town is extraordinarily dangerous for some reason. Everything that I grab hold of and touch uh, makes my hand itch. And so I've got to do something and get out of this place. And, and I go to the rail station and here's a train. I'm going to get on that train to get out of town. But I, but I say, oh, I don't want to touch it. I don't want to touch anything. I don't want to grab hold of it. I don't want to attach to it. Well, if you don't attach yourself and get on that train, you're not going to be able to get out of town. Yeah, yeah, okay. okay. That's so weird, yeah, okay. That's exactly <laughs> yeah. the same thing as the police building up a roadblock to stop the criminal. I, I can see the mentality of, like, uh, the fear of commitment could come from that. Like, the fear of, like, giving your all to something because you're afraid that you'll lose your freedom or your sense of identity or whatever, you know, whatever it is. But that sense yeah. of identity is part of what makes life painful. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so we have to, uh, to see it as painful. And once we see it as painful... Then we can come out of it. Oh my gosh! Yes. Okay. Now, see, you're you, <laughs> you. <laughs> the synchronicity thing is funny. Like, because every time I watch one of your videos, it just kind of clicked. Uh, like you put things into perspective, instead of just one-sided. Like, you know what I mean? It's because I've heard that it's just. Oh, you got to realize that it's just painful. That it's just pain. You have to stop. Like, you just should go inside a cave and just realize how painful your life is, really, like, all of it as it is. And that really, like, kind of confusing because then you don't know what to do. Because if all of it, you might as well just not do anything, you know. Funny like you should sense. mention that because a lot of people practice this. Yeah. And I think that it has more to do with the fact that the students are getting their Dhamma out of books. Yeah rather than from real Dhamma teachers. Even real Dhamma teachers didn't have a real Dhamma teacher. They just got what they've got from books. And now we've yeah. taken a, a kind of a wrong turn. And that's what's happened with Western uh, Buddhism. Yeah. And so we have this group called uh, Secular Buddhism or Pragmatic Dhamma. This kind of idea is to say that this Buddhism that we have is encrusted. It's covered up with something or another. We can call it the Buddhist religion, the box that the actual teachings come in. And we know that this uh, encrusted thing has gotten more encrusted over time, and now it's come to the West. It's our job to do the unencrusting and get back to the original teachings of the Buddha because no one else has it. But what they fail to understand is, oh no, what they're doing right now has been done basically once every 50 to 100 years since the time of the Buddha. 
Mm. That people come along and say, only I know the Dhamma, the old guys don't. Yeah. yeah. But always along the way, there's been these old guys. In fact, these guys that figure out the Dhamma or think that they can figure out the Dhamma, when they get to a teacher and really do figure out the Dhamma, that's how the Dhamma survives. And so the real Dhamma uh, of the Buddha uh, is alive and well today, and it's about, I'm hoping, to get spread into what we call Western Buddhism. Yeah, because it's turned into like asceticism, extreme, kind of like mental asceticism in the sense like you shouldn't be happy at all. Yeah, yeah like you shouldn't Some. be happy. Yeah. Okay. I yeah. think that this is a, <clears throat> is a misapplication yeah. of the teachings. Some of these... Uh, little mistakes have been compounded over a long period of time. And so um, a way of getting away from some of the really old ones is by getting back to the suttas themselves, the actual teachings, as opposed to later literature. You could go so far as to say the latest, the later the literature, the more suspicious it is. Yeah, I've heard. Yeah, yeah. So, if, that, if that's at all the case, then when people ask me, why don't you write another book? I say, yeah, another book? Another one? We need another Dhamma book? I don't think so. <laughs> I think we've got really plenty of books already. Yeah. And uh, the problem with the book is, is that the students read into the book rather than read out of it. The book okay. cannot yeah. tell you what you're doing wrong, or the, bo the book can't set you up the way that the teacher can, so that you can get a really in deep insight into something. Mm. Yeah. Okay. So this is kind of a problem that we have with Western Buddhism, is, is that it came to the West, but it didn't come to the West with nobles. Mm. All of Asia was the Buddhism of the time uh, when it came to that country, including in Thailand. We know that it came here in, in at least two major ways. One was in the 700 AD, and another one was in uh, 1300 AD. But the wave here always came noble. In other words, noble monks who really knew the Dhamma would do some travel. Bodhidharma is a good example of that going to China. But mm -hmm. China had many waves of nobles coming in over the centuries. But the West didn't have any concept of Buddhism at all until the English came uh, doing research on ancient Indian languages because they were enthralled about this issue about Indo-European. How could a language in India be so close to these um, French and Spanish and, and uh, especially Latin. That's kind of funny that um, uh, Sanskrit and um, Pali, or the Maganti language, is very similar to Latin in its structure yeah. and, and vocabulary. It's amazing. And so this is what got their attention, especially uh, the, um, uh, uh, the Latin. And so the Pali was translated then into English by Christians. Mm -hmm. yeah. Isn't I that think, amazing? Yeah, that's, yeah. <laughs> that's why Buddhism has so much Christian language in it. And guilt 
and things that make it seem like guilt, yeah. And all of the trappings that come with the religion that uh, uh, that's influenced it. But the one thing that we didn't have coming to the West in those days was nobles. Those who really understand the teaching of the Buddha and live that way. Now, surprisingly enough, there are lots of nobles. I would I would go so far as to guess maybe 50 to 100 or more nobles are inside the United States. Where are they? Well, for one thing, they don't speak English. They speak some Asian language. And yeah. who's in an Asian temple, ready for the Westerners to come drop in, but the Westerners are too busy reading their books to go find a real noble teacher. Yeah, and there's a monastery where um, near I live. It's a Wat monastery, and the abbot speaks English, I believe. Um, but it's the only Wat in the whole of some. Really, I think it's the only one in Florida, or just only two. There's a yeah. big Thai Wat in Orlando. I yeah. know I've been there. Yeah, 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 yeah. There, there's a what? What is it called? Uh, I, we would call it Wat Orlando. Okay. What yeah. Thai Orlando or what Thai Florida would be uh, because that's how they commonly name the names in uh, the West. For instance, in Seattle, there's what Thai Wa uh, Washington, mm -hmm. but uh, in D.C. there's also a what Thai Washington. So we have to make sure you put the D.C. on it. But okay. there's another big uh, Thai Wat in Seattle, and that's what Atom because the name what Washington has already been taken. <laughs> okay. So, more than likely, it could be referred to as Watt Orlando. You could actually Google Watt Orlando and find it. I have been there, though. It was a long time ago. And when I was there, there was actually a Western monk. And he yeah. There. Okay. Yep. All right. Yeah. I think I know which one you're talking about. And did they have statues a lot? Like, a lot of... It was, it was like, in kind of nature. Like, isolated, but not too isolated. I don't remember going yeah. around the ground. I wasn't okay. there. I was there for some ceremonies and whatnot. Okay. Okay. Uh, and but most most Thai Wats do have Wats and statues, and those yeah. that are associated with Bhikkhu Buddhadasa will have signs throughout the forest, and then those signs will be either in English or Thai language, some quote from the Buddha or Bhikkhu Buddhadasa. So it's uh, set up like that. So. Um, now that we understand these four modes of clinging, and we understand the concept of action that leads to the end of action, we can now look at the two different types of meditation that is done. One kind of meditation uh, is uh, what people call going deep, and the other one, or going down, and the other kind of meditation is going up up in the sense of brightening the mind, bringing it up to, uh, to status, um, to where going deep. Um, this is kind of a state that people get into by sitting a long time, so the idea of sitting longer and longer is better and better. But in fact, um, any activity, we get tired. The human brain just cannot keep out pumping its first-class thought. It can't do it. People yeah. need a break from work. Uh, children have an attention span. 
but at best for kids is 20 minutes. For humans, we can go maybe an hour or so, but longer than that, the mind gets really, really tired. And so we don't need to be practicing for long periods of time to get the mind tired because we want the mind to be bright and sharp. And so it's better to have uh, a number of short sittings through the day in the sense of sitting down and intentionally for 10 minutes. I'm going to be watching the breath, taking long, deep breaths, and keeping the mind on the here now for a short period of time, about 10 minutes. And I do that six to 10 times a day. And now that's, that's really seeking in. If we sit for one long period of day, let's say they sit for an hour, that means that they're not sitting for 23 hours a day. Now, what that means is is that they're letting the mind be full of hindrance and wandering around, and only once a day do they practice bringing the mind out of the hindrances. Except, Except that when we hear these, oh, you shouldn't attach to things, and that the whole idea is non-doing, therefore you should sit there and not do anything, and go towards, and the end is not doing. In the Zen, they talk about it just sitting, Zazen, Mm -hmm. or not doing, or just emptiness, okay? But that often takes a very, very long time because the students are not sitting, sitting there actively doing something to stop the doing. Yeah. And so the meditation becomes when you when the mind wanders away from the breath, let them come back to the breath, but don't change the breath. Just leave the breath that it was and just sit here hoping to get the mind settled down. Well, it will go deep. And that in that state, you can see insights. This is the what they call the dry insight method. But it's long and it's slow and it's painful yeah yeah (laughs) and it has no jhana at all there never was any jhana in there though many of these guys who think they're going deep they mistake that for jhana Mm -hmm. to where everything that i've ever seen about it generally whatever the jhanas are they are done in sequence and if you do not have any mastery at all of the first jhana, then whatever you do that is an experience that has the qualities of fourth jhana is merely a quality of the fourth jhana. It's not the full fourth jhana. The fourth yeah. jhana has to be developed from the first to the second. Once we get the first one, then we develop to get the second one. Once we develop the second one, then the third one becomes easier. And then the fourth jhana is after that. But we can go into states that have some jhana factors, and then the students will confuse these some jhana factors with the whole jhana, where in Mm. fact it's not, because it doesn't have all of the factors there. So, and the way that they got there was because of this quality of non-doing and non-attachment. And the non-doing and non-attachment way it actually is a long, slow, hard slog. And a yeah. lot of students then get really dedicated to it, and they fight, and they work. And others say, wait a minute, I'm not getting any value out of this meditation at all. Why should I continue? 
And so now they have big doubts about whether they're even going to practice or not. But yeah. they're not getting benefit. Which in but they're the not sense, getting any yeah. benefit to yeah. see the way they're practicing. Yeah, which is what I came to. I mean, like, trying to figure out, I, I, I guess, the, the easiest way. Like, oh, if I meditate for long periods or if I stare at this image or if I go to this guru or something. Like it will work. Like some, if I do some, if I like, even and then it's funny because even though they're non doing, they're still doing. Like right. they're still trying their hardest, and uh, yeah, it happens. In in India, and also surprisingly enough, in Cambodia, mm-hmm. they do a lot of shakti pot. In yeah. India, <laughs> the shakti pot was by the guru, but in uh, in Cambodian. The Buddhist monk. In fact, I have been to many, many ceremonies. What? was done. From a Buddhist monk? Yes, right, because it's part of the culture. It's part of the, the Buddhism of uh, Cambodia. What? That's cr- I could never imagine that in my life. <laughs> and so the, the, the monk's bowl will... Uh, at Songkran, uh, the Thai people put powder on their face. Now, the uh, there is a, a powder called uh, prickly heat that has uh, uh, aromatics in it, like uh, eucalyptus or whatever. And so it has a very cooling effect that's in this powder. And on Songkran, the Thai people put it all over their face. But this same kind of powder is what the, uh, the monks mix in with the water. And also rose petals, another thing, so that they, when they're doing the Shakti pot, it does have a pleasant kind of effect of, of cooling, as well as a sweet smell. Okay. okay. Now, that Shakti pot is not the Shakti pot. Yeah, no. That ceremonial Shakti pot. Yeah. There is another kind of Shakti pot, and that's the Shakti pot we're doing right now. And that's the shot of the transmission from the uh, uh, the guru to the uh, student or to the audience is yeah. done to get them to be enthusiastic about the yeah. dhamma. The fire in the belly is what I'm transmitting. Yeah. And so I will talk to the students and tell them that my job is being a cheerleader. <laughs> that that's what my job is. I'm not a coach. I'm not a trainer. Yeah. I'm a cheerleader yeah to cheer the students <laughs> on to get them enthusiastic about their practice to give yeah. them the tools and the techniques so that they can get some value out of their practice immediately hmm. but that is going to take a little bit of finesse in the sense of um, changing the ideas of the students of non-doing is the goal, therefore non-doing is the task that reaches the goal, is not correct. In a way, you have to think about it as priming the pump. That's another analogy that we can use. Getting on the train to get out of town or uh, setting up a roadblock to stop the criminal. Another one is priming the pump. Have you ever seen those old pumps? Yeah. They don't work when they're dry. If the water is in the bottom of the well and the pump is empty, it doesn't matter how much pumping you do, you're not going to draw any water. That's why it's always common and proper to leave a jar, a pint jar of water, 
the last water that's drawn out of the well has been left in a pint jar beside the well so that the next guy who comes to the well can use that pint of water to prime the pump so he can get more water out of it. So we need to do it like that also, is that we've got to take the effort to get out of the effort. Yeah. Another one one is like a hook, in the sense that you can carry something. You got got a hook here. Let me see if I can get a good picture of it upside down. Okay, we got a hook (laughs) like this, and we've got something on the hook so that we can pick it up. And How are we going to get that load off of the hook? Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uplifting it up to get it off the hook. We can't just leave it on the hook to get it off the hook. Yeah. We've got to take the effort to get it up so that it can clear the edge of the hook. Yeah. Okay, that's another analogy to use. Just like a fish, you know. Uh, like you can't like, you can't get it out if you keep pulling at it. Yeah, you can't get the fish hook <laughs> out by pulling it. You got to maneuver it out. Yeah. Okay. That's exactly what we're talking about here, the effort or the uh, comma that leads to the end of comma. Okay. And, and that first point is um, at that point when we see the suffering as suffering. That's when the Buddha says, aha, I see you, Mara. Aha, I see you, suffering. We recognize the suffering, but we do so uh, not by getting into the suffering deeper so that we can see it more clearly. Yeah. But we're getting out of it so that we can see its nature. Aha, I see you, Dukkha, means that we're pulling ourselves out of it. Okay. We become disassociated with it. Now, when we're caught in it, we make statements something like, um, I'm unhappy, or I'm miserable, or I'm uh, frustrated, or I'm angry, or I'm sad or I'm a this or I'm a that, which means that whatever bad feeling there was associated with the situation, that feeling um, grabs us and controls us so that when I say I am angry, that's true. (laughs) What I am is anger. That's what I have become. But people don't recognize, they think that it's but the I is the same, and the anger is new. No, the anger is old and habitual and doing it, and the, and the self, the me, that is angry, is new. That's invented at that point. Oh, man. Yo, okay. That's crazy. Yeah, that's a crazy... Okay, yeah, like, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I'm thinking about suttas I've read, and I'm like, that makes sense now. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah, about feeling, because you know mm-hmm. the feelings and all that. Yeah. The that feelings makes more sense. are old and habitual, but yeah. the self that feels that is brand new. It's in fact it's the vehicle to carry the feelings. But this waking up process is the waking up to aha! I can see that anger now. I am not the anger. The anger is something that is the object rather than uh, the the whole content. It's now just an object. So I see you anger. Aha, I see you, Mara. When the Buddha says that, he's disassociating. So it's like 
uh, the me that's created and the anger. Now we're pulling it out and say, aha, uh-huh, I am not the anger. I see the anger. Yeah. That takes effort. Mm-hmm. Non-doing is just letting there and having the anger or the bad feeling consume one. So we yeah. have to take the effort to get out of that. Yeah. And that effort comes with, aha, I see you. When I recognize that this is the situation, the effort is, is to come out of it so that I can say, I see you as an external thing. Now the anger is just there. It's not me. Yeah, and when you say it's you, is that the moment of contact? That's the moment, right? That would be yes. the moment okay, well, of contact. Con- contact happened a lot. There's a lot of contact. Yeah, different, this yeah. Is one of, yeah, this, this is, is a, yeah. Contact when, it, when it strikes us, I am not the anger. Okay. Yeah. I seek you anger, which means I am not the anger. Now, this is something okay. that we're going to practice over and over and over again throughout the day, mm-hmm. is to recognize, to wake up and see whatever the mind is doing, I am not that. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. And so then we take that point in time to come back to the breathing, start taking long, deep breaths, start pinning the mind uh that's another one. You talk about what uh, attachments. That's one that's really worthy attaching to is our breath. Why okay. is that? Because if we don't attach to it and watch it, then the old reptilian brain will just uh, put it in standby state. It will go into drowsiness. That that's often what people mean when they're going to meditation is just that their mind is tired, they're not breathing well, and they're in drowsy space. Yeah, dreamlike. And they mistake that drowsy dreamlike state for something useful and valuable and wholesome. Yeah, yeah. When in fact it's, it's not necessarily so. It may have some value. You in fact may have some insights in there. But if you're not actually actively throwing that stuff out, then it doesn't matter how insightful that stuff is, how well you can see it, it's still there. How much do we have to see it before we recognize dukkha as dukkha and then rid ourselves of it immediately? Yeah. Rather than inspecting it and inspecting it and looking at it and whatnot like that. Another example is right here in the coronavirus. The doctors themselves who are inspecting and looking at the coronavirus got sick themselves. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, an example. Yeah. If we <laughs> sit there with that dukkha, inspecting that dukkha, it's just not going to go away. It's going to stay hmm. there. It's going to make us sicker, not better. We might have really deep insights into this, but these insights are neurotic insights. Yeah. No. Okay. So the real practice <laughs> is this, and the key point that's missing is actually two key points. One is the key point about the breathing, because these normal uh, book-read meditations, uh, the book doesn't emphasize enough. They may say it, but it's not enough of an emphasis in the book for taking that deep breath. 
And yet if the book has uh, 20 different chapters and in every chapter it has a passage or a page about deep breathing, people will get bored with that book. And so there's almost no way that we can put the really important things that need to be done in the book itself unless the student is extremely diligent in practicing. That's why the teacher can go over things over and over and over and over again so that the student can really, it begins to sink in. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and this is, the, this is the point that needs to be sunk in the most, is the breathing has, uh, in order to be advan- advantageous in this respect, it has to be long and deep and mindful. That's one's effort. That's the right effort. The effort that leads to the end of effort is to take and get into the habit of because after a while of learning to take a deep breath, it's just kind of natural. And so we don't have to focus on I'm going to make sure I'm breathing because it just kind of happens naturally because we're well practiced. It's a skill to be developed is the long, slow, deep breathing. The same thing is also true with the statement about gladdening the mind. Those are the two things that are missing in most yeah. meditation systems. And yet there it is right there in the Anapanasati Sutta. But if they spend most of their time in the Satipatthana Sutta, the Satipatthana Sutta uh, is a companion for the uh, Anapanasati Sutta. But if they spend only time in the Satipatthana and not in the Anapanasati Sutta, that's when they miss these two points about how important the breathing is and also how important it is to change the mind. Now, in the uh, Satipatthana mm. Sutta, in the area that we're uh, discussing, it talks about um, what to do or the insights to be gained from Dhamma Nupasana. Now, what I mean by that is the four foundations of mindfulness is Kaya, the body, Vedana, the body, Sita, the mind, and Dhamma, Nupasana, what the mind is doing. And in there, in the Satipatthana Sutta, the first item on the list is the five hindrances. What is the mind doing? We have to see those hindrances. But then later in the sutta, in the next page or so, it gives new things to do with the mind, and that is to uh, put in the five aggregates, and then the, uh, the four noble truths. Yes, yes, okay. This is all making sense. It's like things I think about that I'm like questioning if I'm right or wrong, and I'm like, yeah, that makes sense. It's like, yes. It's like the more ideas you accumulate, the worse. Like, it, like all these different ideas like it kind of makes you kind of circle and circle and circle mm-hmm. around these things so what yeah. what the sutta itself doesn't directly point out and therefore the students miss yeah. is that they need to start with seeing the hindrances and then take them out and put something in the mind that's more wholesome and appropriate yeah that that is what the point of the gladdening the mind is. And that's that statement that the Buddha made. Aha, I see you, Mara. Because that's coming out of it. Now that we have come out of the hindrances, we actually now are beginning to take control of the mind. Mm-hmm. 
just like we're taking control of the body by learning to breathe long, deep, natural, um, let us say healthy, wholesome breathing. Now we're going to start doing wholesome things with the mind rather than just letting it run around, a monkey mind or um, uh, a wandering mind. But in fact, the wandering mind can be referred to as the restlessness. The restless of the mind is, is that it keeps going around, just going from here to there, from the past to the future with uh, no direction. Naturally, we're going to, if we're dwelling in the past and letting it run around, we're going to run across memories that are painful. And the reason for that is because that's how the self-preservation instinct's job is to prevent us from danger. We're going to remember the dangers. We're going to remember the difficulties. The example of that is the little kid is writing on the wall, and he's enjoying it. He's got his crayons out, and he's making a nice, beautiful four-year-old's picture on the wall. And he's really liking it. I mean, what a nice uh, thing he's got, 30 minutes or more of writing on the wall. Mom comes in and sees what he's doing, and she doesn't like it. Yeah. And so she gives him a hard time. He's going to remember that hard time that mommy gave him, maybe even a spanking. But he's not going to remember all the joy he had in writing on the wall. Yeah, yeah. You multiply that by every day that we've had, and you recognize, yes, that's what we do, is we tend to remember the bad, and we tend to forget the good. Primarily because the good is quite often, and the bad is spectacular. Yeah. <laughs> and so we forget the ordinary good and we remember the spectacular. So later in our lives now, we wind up just going over one misery operation after another after another because that's the hindrances of the wandering mind. It's restless. It can't set, settle down. It moves from one hot spot to another, literally. There's no rest wherever the mind goes on its own. The, dog, uh, the, uh, the Buddha had an analogy of a dog who may have had some sort of skin disorder, but he pointed out to the monks over there after he noticed the dog. You see, the dog would lay down like all dogs do, but then he would scratch a bit, then he would get up and he would circle around, and then he'd lay right back down in the same place that he had before, but he wouldn't become comfortable. He would bite and scratch, and then he'd yeah. stand up and he would walk around again, and then sit back down. And then he'd stand up and walk around again. And the Buddha says, this is how you guys are practicing your meditation. You lay down to practice meditation, and then you get up and you start wandering again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I see. Okay. So, we, we begin to put a, um, uh, a harness on this wandering mind. And what is that harness? The harness is actually the breath. But even after we harness the breath, the, uh, the animal is just going to go all over the place as to best, best he can with the tether. But if, the, if the, he can break through the tether, then he can go anywhere. And so you can see that with a horse's harness, or in the time of the Buddha, he used the analogy of elephants. 
that the elephant they would uh, when they caught a, um, a bull elephant uh, in order to train that elephant they had to stake him out and that the elephants were big and tough and powerful and so uh, they would uh, tie him to his weakest leg his left hind leg but then overnight that elephant would put all of his weight on the other three legs and take that third uh, the fourth leg that's tethered and swing it back and forth back and forth back and forth back and forth until it breaks free of the tether and then they off they go well the, the men the, the trainers they know exactly where that elephant is going so they go back and get him again and bring him back and tie him down again over time, the elephant becomes out. It doesn't matter how many times I get caught uh, and and get loose again; they're going to catch me again. So why do yeah. I bother running away or um, shaking the stick until it comes on? This is exactly the analogy that we're going to use for the mind. We're going to tether the um, the mind itself to the breath, and it will run around and run around and run around until it finally breaks free. And then later we'll remember and bring it back to the breath. And then it'll run around and run around and run around until it finally breaks free again. So now we need to begin to train the mind to not run around while it's being tethered. So in fact, we're going to make the, uh, the tethering uh, close enough so that the mind doesn't get much chance to wander. So the best way to yeah. do it is to keep the mind focused on the present moment that's associated with the breathing. To stay yeah. here and in the here now. And this is what begins to settle the mind down so that it doesn't just roam all over the place. Okay, yeah. It becomes actually trained. It's actually a domestication that humans are beginning to domesticate their own mind, which is a monkey mind or uh, a wild beast. And we can train <laughs> it, we can train dogs to, uh, to behave themselves. And so we can also train the mind. And so this is the way that we uh, go about it. And so I think that this is a fairly good answer then to your question, that we've covered it from three angles. The three angles would be... Uh, Knowledge, or excuse me, action or comma that leads to the end of comma is an important point. The next point is, is that we're going to go up with this action rather than going down, which we think is no action, but in fact it really is just more action. Yeah. Okay, the mind will continue to roll on and on and on until we actually take an activity to bring it to an end. And this is the part where people miss a lot. And so the breathing and the uh, changing of the mind and taking the action, taking the effort to change the content of the mind from what it normally does into having it, it um, being able to apply it and then sustain it so that we apply the mind to the breathing and then we sustain it on that. And we also sustain the mind in the sense of not allowing the kind of thoughts that are going to pull us away from the breathing. When we begin to do that, we begin to say, wait a minute, I can do this. Yeah. 
Yeah. That's when the joy comes. Really, the joy it comes from the success of knowledge that hey, I can control the mind. It's possible. Yeah, and that's what uh, like when we talked last time. What happened was was like the simple recognition that I could do that, and and that was like a really big deal. And the, and then for the like next uh, after that, it was weird because for the next few days, I was like in that like zone of like i didn't even have to think good thoughts i just they were coming and then ending and then coming and then ending and then and then i noticed that and then i got happier and then i noticed it again and then i got happier and then i felt like i was just like floating on air and then what began to happen was the doubt started again which is like oh i don't know if this is right i don't this might not be a good idea like maybe this is getting attached to really happiness and all this crazy, like kind of, kind of like uh, the self-preservation thing. Mm-hmm. Yes, those, yeah, those and, and then I was like, I even, <laughs> and I was, I was at work. I wasn't even sitting down. I was at work at night, and my tiredness or anything. And every time I noticed something, I would hear kind of like your voice saying, "Like I see you, Mara," and then. Or like a smile or something like that. Yeah, like something. And it would every time, boom, boom. And it was like a little mantra almost, like a little thing. I can see it and then I can let it go. I can, And the more I did that, it was like just domino effect. Mm-hmm. Yes. And uh, almost felt like, I, I swear, I was kind of so happy. I was like, am I, is this what enlightenment is? <laughs> I was like, I was like, I was like, no. And then I started to doubt it. And that's when I was like very kind of constricted again, uh, little by little. But then what I noticed was like, I, so like, like if I mess up or quote unquote, or do something that it seems like, uh, I didn't, I don't judge myself anymore. And that was like a big deal to me. I was like, that's weird. I should hate myself for this. <laughs> and I don't, you know, and it was like, yeah, it was very different. Yeah. Like the whole hating yourself is gone. Like that's a that's a good thing Excellent. to me. Excellent, because that's that's the practice is learning to become friends with yourself. To be yeah, yeah, yeah with these instincts, yeah. to know what they are. We're not going to destroy them, but we are going to be able to hmm. manage them or control them. Perhaps the word control is a pretty heavy duty word, but we can get along with them. We can be yeah, friends yeah, with yeah, them. exactly. We can uh, work together. With See them, them as they are, kind of. Right. Yeah. Now you made a question or made a statement about the um, uh, the doubt, uh, and it came in the form of the question: Is this enlightenment? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Because I was flying. It felt what like that flying. Means is, though is is that somehow or another because um, of our let us say, society that's based upon a lot of magical beliefs. Christianity is very much Mm. founded on magical beliefs. I've got a little list, you know, no fuck babies and dead men walking and... (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And and super, super special people. And so we want... ...special kind of people. And we put him up there on the shelf with Buddha, uh, with uh, uh, Jesus, and that they somehow are out of reach, or something way up there. 
And so when we also put uh, Jesus up there as the Son of God, when we put Buddha up there and use the word enlightenment, it's almost like we're getting a magical definition of the word enlightenment, where the word enlightenment actually was a war. Yeah, yeah, enlightenment, yeah, yeah, the enlightenment, yeah. Right, Mm -hmm. there were guillotines and all kinds of scientific equipment and everything in enlightenment. Uh, In fact, enlightenment would be one of the ways to talk about that time that had the Gutenberg Bible and uh, travel and the explosion of information that was written in books. And so humanity kind of woke up at that time. That was the enlightenment. Yeah. And the enlightenment was the enlightenment of, um, let us say, at a high philosophical level, the distinction between religion and science. And that, and that actually is a war that continues on inside of each individual one of us. The war between magical thinking and reality. Yeah, yeah. And so we bring a lot of magical thinking into our uh, meditation practice. And one of that magical thinking is, is this word enlightenment. So if I give you a better definition of the word enlightenment, then it won't be bringing those kind of doubts in there because the word enlightenment actually is a real life thing. It's not something way up there that only the very few can have. Now it is true that only a very few can have this, but that's because of the choice that each one of those people make. That it doesn't require someone special and wants it. It just requires that you actually want it in the right way. And then you can have it and you can become part of the, a member of the Club of Nobles. Okay, yeah. Now, <laughs> enlightenment has the word light as its base. And there are two ways that we use the word enlightenment. One is to turn the lights on, to see the light of day, uh, the light of day. Basically, this is the idea of knowledge, that we awaken or we enlighten to knowledge, that we understand things. Within the Buddhist context, there are three fetters that are associated with knowledge. One is knowledge of the personality view. Who am I? Am I a permanent self? or am I transitory, the coming in and out based upon what's happening in one's life. And that the more the self or I come into it, the more there is suffering. And the less there is of an I, then the less suffering. This is what we understand to be the real personality. The second enlightenment is the enlightenment to recognize that the society that you live in is doing you no favors. Yeah, I think we all realized that in high school. (laughs) And we also have no other society, and so we take that society and internalize it, and so we become members of that society. Not only are we in the world, we're of the world, because all we know of the world is what we learned from the world. Yeah. But... The, uh, in, within the context of enlightenment, that means that we begin to see this, not begin, we fully understand it. We become disgusted with not just the world itself, but our attachments to it through our instincts, yeah. 
an instinctual attachment because that's where the society was built from. It was built upon a mountain of instinctual bad behavior of humans. Greed, yeah. delusion primarily. And nobody really wants that. Like at the deepest level, nobody wants that. Right, and so we have to be free from the lies that we've been told and the lies that we keep telling ourselves. And one of the lies you told yourself was enlightenment is way up there. So how could what I have now be enlightened? Yeah, it was kind of like uh, when the Buddha said, "Why would I? Why would I um, not let myself feel this pleasure that does not come from sensuality or whatever? Like, uh, like why would he stop? Why would he rehold? In a sense, because I think it's just fear, like fear of being okay with whatever happens to you, like being okay, just generally." Because that's scary, because then you open really yourself up. It you know. have the quality you've got to suffer to get the yeah. reward. You have to yeah. actually go out and do good to get good results. Yeah. And in a way, that's true. We're just showing a way of the example with the hook. We're getting on the train to get out of town, to put up the roadblock. There are actions that do give good results. Yeah. But if we live our whole lives that way, then we become... Uh, um, in the way that anything we want, we've got to work too hard in it, and our society sets that up. Why, if if the phrase is true, if you don't work, then you don't eat. It only takes me ten or twenty minutes a day to eat. Why should I have to work any longer than that to eat? Yeah. Oh no, they want you know all day long. That even if you have a, uh, a part-time job, now you've got to have three part-time jobs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Why? Because they want you to stay greedy. They want you to be poor and still buy things. Yeah. And yeah. so this is all part of Sila Bhatta Paramasa, but the worst aspect of it is, is that when we become our own parents, we become our own society, and we tell ourselves, you've got to go do this, you've got to go do that. Mm-hmm. That your boss doesn't have to ring you in the morning at 7 o'clock to say, you got to come to work today. He assumes that that phrase has already been engrilled into you in the past. Yeah. yeah. That that's part of the reason that you went to school, was to learn to get up and go to work every day. And so now yeah. they got you. Well, guess what? <laughs> That's a lie. You don't have to get up and go to work every day. Mm-hmm. That you can get up and enjoy your day instead. And any activities you, that you do um, are kind of like secondary. That the primary day, a primary thing is enjoy your day. Yeah. And, and, and that's where it's like, whoa, like how far can that go? And that's where it's, you really can't know. It I mean, goes that's all the way to the what? It goes all the way to the robes. It goes yeah. all the way to completely checking out. And, and millions of well, people do that. And that's what I was, when I was feeling that, like that, whatever, I don't know what happened. It was like, once you said those words about doubt, it just boom and everything. I was free from kind of just doubt, basically. And then like... I felt so happy. I even cried because I was like, why do I feel so happy? Like, I just, I don't even understand. Like, I just didn't under, I really, because it was foreign. Like, it was sense of that joy. Like, a happiness always has to come from you suffering first. It, it, it can't come from you just being like, you know. Be happy. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that, so that third knowledge then is the doubt. 
that freedom from the doubt because the third knowledge is the knowledge and vision of what is and what is not the path. We've got that and we know that we can do it. And so we actually eradicate all three of the kinds of doubts. The doubts about who can do this for me, I need help. The doubt about can I do it myself or not. And then the doubt about is this the right method to do. And when we come to the conclusion that the Buddha's Eightfold Noble Path and Anapanasati is the right path. Yeah. And there's no doubt about that. And that we can, and we have done it enough. Yeah. And so this is part of that shocky part of me convincing <laughs> you that you can, in fact, do this. And then yeah. you can convince yourself you can do this. And that's the eradication of doubt. So that's, that's the three um, fetters that have to do with knowledge. All of the other seven fetters, which we'll talk about later, have to do with the other kind of uh, enlightenment. And that's the enlightenment when things are not heavy. Okay. Okay, we become light. First, yeah. we, uh, first we become uh, illuminated or lightened, and then we lighten up. <laughs> yeah, I see what you're saying. I see. Okay. We don't become so heavy anymore. And in fact, we're beginning to drop the burdens. And that um, an example of that would be if, if you had no load to carry, then you can actually maneuver better. But if you're carrying a heavy load, then our maneuvering around, for instance, um, climbing Mount Everest, what they will do is they will establish a base camp. And then they'll take all their goods up there so they've got a camp, okay? <laughs> you can't just put this stuff all on your back. All the goods you're going to need to get to the top of the hill and then uh, uh, top of Mount Everest and just go there. Yeah. You've got to be able to get free of these burdens of all your baggage so you can make the climb. So this is the point now, the real freedom, the freedom to come to the, to the pinnacle of our own existence has to do with when we drop the baggage of our past. Yeah, and, and, and we that's... We drop our greed, we drop our uh, anger and our will-will, we're no longer angry, we are friendly, we're not competitive with people, but we're fearless, we're not uh, afraid anymore. These are the higher fetters that we deal with, but we can only deal with them when we, not, when we have a knowledge of how to deal with them. And this is, a, as we cultivate this, um, this, basically this view, basically, we cultivate right view in a sense right like you call you start from there and then you keep going up and up and up and up and up <laughs> until you are pretty much up <laughs> like you just can't go down anymore like is like and and there's the well, thing we like we don't um, want to go down anymore we immediately recognize mm, that going down is it's pointless yeah it's yeah, pointless. pointless yeah mm. and and it's like uh the the paticha samupada is like like I think is one of the most coolest things because it seems so mystical, but it isn't. When I read it from the Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa's book, he like really simplified the words because some people use really hard words to understand. And um, I like how he said to start from craving, to like don't don't go beyond. Like just that's where the it really you can start to like keep pushing it. You can quench it from there, I guess. Right? Would that be correct? You can, yes. yeah. 
in, in fact, I we'll, see you. We'll yeah. Great, yeah. We'll talk in great detail about uh, Perfect. Uh, the way that particular samapada works. And yeah. in, in fact, when we're doing Anapanasati that we've been talking about correctly, that's in fact doing the Paticca Samuppada, and we'll show yep. what that means at, at a later time. So now okay. let's go back to the word enlightenment yep. for a moment to recognize that the, while the word enlightenment itself has some very useful definitions, mostly people make it into a magical kind of thing. Yeah. All right. So let's look at it from this perspective without even giving it enlightenment a definition. Let's just say it's good old whatever it is and we don't quite know what it is because we've been thinking about it as a magical kind of thing. And we're going to compare that with something that's absolutely real. And that absolutely real thing is actually our satisfaction with the moment, our joy. Now, here's the question. Would you rather be satisfied or enlightened? Yeah, well, satisfied. <laughs> Peaceful. Because if satisfaction is satisfaction, then I can be satisfied the way things are now without this magical thing, enlightenment. Yeah. However, if enlightenment is something magical, but it does not have the quality of satisfaction built into it, then what value is it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's like, that's really nothing. It's right. just more so suffering. It's some sort of magical state up there that we don't know what it is, and because we don't know what it is, we can't claim that we're there. But if we have a much better definition, then we can say enlightenment. Sure, I go in and out of it all the time. Yeah. Yeah. The Buddha, uh, not the Buddha, the the, uh, the Zen priest, in fact, tells the Zen students, "You're already enlightened. Stop wanting something." Yeah. Stop wanting to be enlightened because the wanting to be enlightened is uh, the thing that's keeping you from being enlightened. Yeah, and that's always the pressure, or that's where the pain is, the pain of I am, the I should the do, I, I should, should do, do, I want, yeah. I yeah. should do this, I want yeah. to do that. Yeah. Rather than, no, things are good enough right now, thank you. That's enlightening yeah. enough. I'm good enough, so. Sometimes that pressure can build up, though. Like, some people can get really scared of that. It's overpowering, you know, like the pressure. Like, because as, as modern people, we get addicted to doing. Like, literally. Just, I mean, even sitting still is it was hard at first. Hard to do. Yeah, yeah. Even little children are known to not be able to sit still. That, in fact, teaching really little children to meditate is not useful. Yeah, yeah. That you see the way this, uh, that, in fact, parents want their children to sleep in a different bed because sleeping with a child under the age of seven or eight is difficult. <laughs> yeah. You'll wind up uh, being woke up with a knee on your belly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. Because the, the little kids are just all over the, the bed, all over the place. Tossing and turning and, and whatnot. They're very, very active. Well, we came out of that. We came out of that state, but we didn't come out of doing that thing. That we're still quite restless. Babies are restless all night long when they're in their, their sleep, but also <coughs> the mind is just in turmoil. Yeah. 
And so what real enlightenment is, is coming to a rest. Coming out of the um, uh, restlessness that we are born into. It's part of our nature. It's, it's natural. It's part of our instincts to be restless, to be on guard, to be afraid. Yeah. Because if, if the humans didn't have that instinctual system built in, we wouldn't survive to today as a species. Yeah. That has kept us alive, so we need those instincts. But we don't need false positive alarms from these instincts. That's what's going on is there's, there's so many false alarms. Yeah. And when we train the instincts, then they don't give us false alarms, they give us real alarms. This is really a time um, to do this, that, or the other thing, rather than feeling like it. Yeah, and, so and what? Yeah, I'm sorry, go ahead. We, we, so we begin to manage our feelings and manage our instincts. To be, when we can do that, that's enlightened. Why? Because these things are no longer a burden, and we've woken up to them. So now we've got a very practical definition of the word enlightenment, and of course you're enlightened from time to time. Yeah, like it's it's about like you said, like I asked you, pra is it a practice? Do you it's it's a uh, you practice it? It's a practice. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yes. which is it's the hardest thing to understand for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> It's weirdly hard. I think you're on your way. I think that you're beginning to get an understanding of this. It, it really does go against our society. Our society has been uh, molding our children to be work animals. Yeah, like a permanent self, like an idea that you are like a, a machine that continuously needs to be charged, basically. Which is, wow, that's and really, to, yeah. And it's to be put to work for someone else's benefit. Yeah, and one thing that I was in, when, when I was in, I, I don't like to call it state, because, you know, but in that, without hindrance. Like, I could think, like, I could sit down and think without overthinking. Like, I could think, but clearly. Like, I could really think about something. And I and I and and it was the weirdest because I would choose an object like death or the body or the the breath or you know and use the breath, and it was it was so much more useful because I could think clearly and I wasn't trying to per se think through something or it was just allowing my mind to activate itself for me, and it was weird because I I discovered something I one is that the there's an intimacy with nature. When you start thinking about these things, like in a sense, like I'm no different than any other person. Like it is, and that was another thing that really shocked me. Like, <laughs> like I was, I looked at all these people because I have like this meditation um, in front of you right now. There's like all these pictures of all of my heroes. Like when I meditate, so I can get expired, you know, because I come from like tantra and stuff, and that's normal, and that's my background. And now I look at them, and I was like, that's also like me, like. That's also me too, and then there's also that guy. And I was like, yeah, and I started crying again because I was like, they're all like, I was, I was just so happy. And even now, in I think way, about you know. In a yeah. way, what you decided to do with that is that you have joined an exclusive club. Yeah, it was like a family, you know. 
Right, you've got a new family or a new lineage going. That's what we're looking at. Yeah, it was it was intimate. Yeah. And and these these guys who used to be ideals way up there are now right here in front of us, and that they're ordinary. They're human. Yeah, that's that's yeah. They have a body that's not horrible. Like oh, like that's not something that you need to get rid of or. It was just so weird. It was weird. Like, death, natural, that's also beautiful in a sense. It can be. And it was it was a really weird acceptance of your, of your genuine just kind of you belong within what you're... You here, you're here. You belong here. This exactly. is where you're supposed to be. Yeah. Well, um, yeah. this actually has the quality then of the distinction between ordinary and special. Every yeah. child in our society is raised to be special. Yeah, you So we yeah. have an entire generation of special people. So being yeah. special is actually ordinary in a way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because everybody told us they're supposed to be special. But those of us who recognize, no, we're all in this together. Yeah. There's nothing special about me at all. There's nothing special about you, that we're all ordinary, we're all humans, we're all in the same boat together. It's just that everybody's rowing in a different direction. <laughs> yeah, and that's what makes it special. Like, that's the funniest part. It's like, whoa, like, what? <laughs> You're kind of shocked by that. And it's like way better that way, actually. Mm -hmm. yeah. So welcome to the world of the ordinary happy rather than the special miserable. <laughs> Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. <laughs> okay, Dennis. Well, let's finish this off now, and we'll talk later. Thank you so much. Thank you. We'll definitely talk again. Excellent. See you.